You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Cloud9, we explore the intersection of art and spirituality through conversations with Baha'i artists from around the world. These artists bring diverse perspectives on the Baha'i faith and the influence it has had on their own creative practice and service to their communities. Today, Cloud9 has produced over 35 episodes. Each episode captures unique stories, reflections, and experiences, offering insight into the role that art has had in advancing society and uniting the human race. Which is why I'm so excited to chat with our next guest artist, as he's been exploring these concepts and questions for more than 20 years. Signed to a major record label at the age of 18, our guest artist has produced music and collaborated with Kanye West, SZA, Miguel, John Legend, Alan Stone, and countless of other prominent musicians dominating the charts today. Our guest artist is known as Ben Good, or Benny Cassette. In this episode, we'll explore the various service and creative opportunities that have opened up for him since the COVID-19 pandemic and quarantine began. We'll learn about his childhood and youth and the influences that being raised by his grandmother on the east side of LA had on his life and music today. We'll also learn about his unique introduction to the Baha'i faith and explore how the Baha'i teachings and writings help him stay grounded, impact his creative choices, and the community that he chooses to surround himself with today. Benny, welcome to Cloud9. Whoa, what an introduction. I love it. <laughs> well, first off, congrats on your Grammy nomination for Best R&B Song, the song called Collide from the Queen and Slim soundtrack. How does it feel? It's always exciting to get a Grammy nomination. And I think, you know, this one is special because of the journey of that song and what the song has meant to a lot of people right. and what the movie was about and just what's going on in the world right now. It's just been a, it's been a really great feeling. Everybody's been really excited and it's nice to see when um, something that has cultural impact actually gets recognized by something like the Grammys. So this isn't your first Grammy nomination. You've, you've received <laughs> I've been Grammy nominated, nominations before. Uh, yeah, I've been nominated as part of full albums before, like where I was part of um, like a couple times with Kanye and then um, with Miguel. Um, so this is my technically this is my sixth um, Grammy nomination. Wow! Just competing with Beyonce. We're competing with Beyonce, so you know we're, we should okay. be good. <laughs> I appreciate your confidence. <laughs> Um, so yes. we've been in, in a, a strange period of lockdown, quarantine, and social distancing, bu social bubbles. Tell me what you've been up to during this this period. And you mentioned that it's opened up opportunities for service and elevated conversations. So tell me more about that. Um, yeah, I think at first everybody, you know, especially artists that I knew kind of fell into, I won't say depression, but people climb back into their caves because, you know, artists also have a tendency to be introverts. And I think when everything shut down and tours stopped and studio sessions stopped and just being able to interact with people stopped, everybody kind of, you know, went into their own personal space and just sort of shut down. And I think once, once all of us sort of realized that this was going to go on for a while, we knew that we had to adjust. And then slowly people started reaching out 
and talking to each other. And I think the first thing that was interesting is which exactly what you said, which <clears throat> the elevated conversations, because people were starting to question, why are we making art? What's the point of art? What is art's impact on what's going on right now? And then you had Black Lives Matter stuff that happened on top of the quarantine. I think for the first time, maybe ever, because people couldn't leave their home, they were forced to see exactly what was happening to black people in this country. They couldn't really like turn their back on it and pretend that it wasn't happening because it was in your face. And I think that was awesome because we know that, you know, racism is America's most challenging issue. And I think that for a long time, we have swept it under the rug or forget that subtle racism as, is as hurtful and, and impactful on what's going on in the world as blatant racism. And I think as artists, um, we all had to really take a look at ourselves as a community in the music community, um, as artists in the sense of, you know, there's also a lot of cultural appropriation that happens in the arts, um, where a lot of white artists are, you know, use black music as influence in what they do. And, and sometimes that is, um, a subtle privilege that we all get to experience and don't really talk about. And then on top of that, just people questioning their own spirituality because so many people I worked with um creatives music executives we're having these conversations not only about what diversity really is and what inclusion really is but what our place is in the world with the art that we create but i felt like we had to go beyond the conversations and so i started really diving back into service projects um and trying to do stuff for the community so people could could feel like you know what there was action we could do even though we were quarantined and we were not supposed to be around a lot of people um you know, so I, I started doing a lot of mentoring over Zoom of um, different young folks that I knew that were reaching out and that were wanting to learn how to, I don't know, like make tracks, how to record themselves. But like a lot of them were kids that were, were um, you know, having trouble during quarantine and were already having trouble before quarantine, but it was magnified because they were forced to stay at home. And then we started doing blessing bags uh, with the rescue mission here where we were putting bags together and taking them down to the mission because you know, what was going on with the homeless people on Skid Row with COVID and everything happening was like insane. I was just like, they were getting no help. So I felt like it became an opportunity more than um, something that was a negative, at least for me, um, because the conversations were amazing. The service has been amazing. And I've just made a lot of deeper connections with people. Um, I also heard that you're hosting biweekly devotional meetings. What have they been like? They've been good. I mean, we've tried our best to create a space where people can just hear some writings and hear some songs every couple of weeks for like 40 minutes. Um, it's been good in the sense that I think people are, um, are walking away from that devotional gathering and they feeling, feeling like they are refreshed and that their cup is being filled with some spiritual rejuvenation. So has this period of somewhat solitude changed or affected the way that you work as an artist and has it opened up opportunities that you wouldn't have expected as a musician? Um, it kind of forced me to be more creative on my own as opposed to being around groups of people and I guess having to be a little bit more innovative with how I was getting songs done with people. Because mm -hmm. um, now you're like sending songs to people, they're writing ideas, they're sending them back, you're going back and forth to create. Um, the circumstances of recording are a lot different. So you just have to be, you have to be more creative. But for me, um, I, because I've been pushing myself to stay really optimistic and positive, I think that has been great for the people that I've been working with because I feel like optimism and inspiration and those kind of, um, that kind of energy is infectious. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to use this as a way um, to help other people 
keep their optimism as well. So, I don't know. I think it's been cool because people have just learned how to work in a different way and have adapted to it. And it's made it, I think it's made the, the music change. Like music is sounding different now. You know, there's another layer of depth to what's going on right now, I think. The fact that you have an outlet of art and creativity is such a gift because mm -hmm. you're able to express yourself and convey what you're feeling in a way that most of the world is not. And so we forget that as artists that like this really is a bounty and a gift mm -hmm. and something that God has given us for a reason. And I feel like I really felt that when we went back in the studio, like everybody was just so thankful. And I always say I always say a prayer before every session. Um, and when we would say those prayers, like a couple of times people cried and like, and people were like really emotionally moved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned prayer. I'm just curious about how the Baha'i teachings and principles show up and impact your work as an artist and um, pre-COVID, post-COVID, what sort of conscious creative choices uh, have you been making to bring the Baha'i teachings and the teachings of Baha'u'llah to life through your creative work? I mean, the big one for me has been, um, prayer for sure. I mean, you know, I read a lot of um, biographies and autobiographies. And I remember I read about how like Earth, Wind and Fire and Michael Jackson, like a few artists, they would always pray before their sessions. And I thought that was so cool. Um, and then years ago, I went to the um, Native American Baha'i Institute um, in, in New Mexico, and we would get in the Hogan, which is like their, you know, their form of, I guess, for people that don't know it's not it's not a tp but like if you, it, it's their like space that they live in they're called hoguns and they would go in these spaces and when we would say prayers like the elders would say a prayer from their heart and they would call out what was happening mm -hmm. and pray to the spirits and then they would end with like a baha'i prayer and i thought that was so moving um and i grew up catholic so you know you would never do that in catholicism you would just say a prayer by the book and so in um sessions i would start saying a prayer mm -hmm. from my heart and just try to open up and I would mention people by name in the room and I would, I would pray for what we wanted out of the session and what we were trying to do. And then I would end with a Baha'i prayer. And then I'd always say at the end, because there'd be different denominations, I usually say something like, you know, Amen, Ya Baha'u'llah, Om. You know, I'll say different things at the end just so everybody feels included. And, um, and everybody always says at the end of the prayer, they're always like, what's the second one you said? <laughs> you know? Like, what's that second one? And I was like, oh, yeah, well, how And they're like, yeah, what's the second one? And mm. I start telling them, you know, oh, glory, the most glorious and start. And then it always becomes a conversation about um, <laughs> about the faith, you know, or about spirituality or about something to the ex to the extent of um, why we're saying a prayer, how amazing it feels to say a prayer before a session. And I think for me, that has been the most direct way to create a setting where people feel like not only is it a spiritual um, mm. gathering, but it's a sacred space because we're getting ready to write songs together and create art together, which is to me, maybe the most intimate experience we can have on the planet. Um, and that directly has been, you know, it's funny because now I have a reputation in the music business as the guy that says prayers before. So I'll, I'll like work with mm. somebody new and they'll be like, yo, I heard about the prayer. <laughs> Like, they're like, are we about to say that? And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, you like always say a prayer before the sessions, right? And then what, what happens, which is really cool, is that as I start working with people a lot, I'll ask them to say a prayer. I'll be like, yo, why don't you start off today with a prayer? And then they'll be like, oh my God, I haven't prayed in so long. And so it becomes a conversation that you end up having with other people because now people are telling me, yo, I'm praying before my sessions now too. You know, I'm saying a prayer before my session. And it's like, so it's been cool because that sometimes turns into maybe just a conversation about spirituality, maybe a conversation specifically about mm. the Baha'i faith. But I think, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's like, 
got to be courageous to do that. I was like, you actually don't have to be courageous to do that because every time I say a prayer before a session, the songs come out amazing. Mm. So it's actually like, you should do it. Yeah, it's like your secret sauce. <laughs> 100%, 100%. So that has been the most um, direct way, I think, for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were raised by your grandmother, if I'm not mistaken, on the east side of Los Angeles. And for someone who's never lived in L.A. or the United States, could you paint a picture of what your experience was like? You know, I think pre-gentrification, um, the neighborhoods in my city, like uh, MacArthur Park, Echo Park, Silver Lake, were very different neighborhoods and they were um uh, mainly latino um they were ma- mainly low income um you know i took the bus everywhere i took the bus to school i took the bus around the city um i hung out with a di- diverse group of kids i went to primarily all black schools you know um my family's background is sicilian and spanish so i felt like a mutt as a kid for sure because i was mm. constantly having to change how i interacted with people in order to i guess as a survival skill it was just all very confusing at the time um but i think that upbringing um really is what allowed me to be open-minded especially to the principles of the faith because i think a lot of people in the baha'i faith you know it talks a lot about unity and diversity and it talks a lot about um how we're all from one god and um, all people are created from this God. And I think if you've only grown up around one, you know, one ethnicity, one race, which is your own race, that it's harder to see those things. Like it's harder to understand those things, like not on a, like a, like on in, in your mind, but it's hard to understand them in your heart. And for me growing up around so many people and feeling like they were all the same, they just had different, you know, backgrounds allowed me to embrace that principle wholeheartedly, um, which has obviously had a profound effect on my music and who I am as an artist, but has allowed me to move in different circles seamlessly. It's helped me be sensitive to what people are going through. Not to say that I'm like an expert on anything, but I feel like I've been able to be more compassionate because I've experienced it. And um, and definitely, you know, the Catholic thing is tough, was tough for me. Um, what do you mean the Catholic thing? I mean, I was just raised, told, uh, you know, raised my whole childhood being told I was going to hell. Um, so, so at a certain a certain point, you just check out and you're like, you know, there, God can't be real if all I'm doing is being sent to hell for everything I do. When those kind of things are instilled in you at a young age, you just have to do a lot of work to remove them from your subconscious. And so I think part of me becoming a member of the Baha'i faith was that I had to reprogram a lot of that and rearrange the furniture in my subconscious and change a lot of my core beliefs so I could function as a healthy spiritual individual, or at least be striving to be a healthy spiritual individual. So amongst this very complex environment and all of these influences and forces in your life, how did you come across the Baha'i faith and what was it that like caught your attention or interest at the time? Um, I was sent to a art uh, art school, art high school, um, and um, I had gotten in some trouble prior to that. And, and after getting in trouble, I was given the option of a few different schools that I could co- go to that would hopefully encourage the talents that I had at the time. Um, cause I was a bad kid, but I was a really good, um, artist, like a visual artist. And I met another um, student at that school, um, who happened to be a Baha'i. She was just very different than all the other students. Um, she was very focused. She 
was always reading and I just thought it was interesting. So I one day asked her what she was reading and it was a Baha'i book and she told me that she was a Baha'i and I immediately thought it was a cult. I couldn't even <laughs> pronounce it. I, you know, everybody I think butchers it the first time, but I was like, what is it? What does it mean? Um, and I asked her what it was and she said, look, if you want to know what it is, like find out for yourself, go read a book. And I thought that was so crazy because as a Catholic or, you know, even to a, as a Christian to a certain extent, when somebody asks you what it means to be a Catholic or what does it mean to be, you know, a Christian, you kind of go really hard to convince them that that's what they should be, you know? And you, um, and you really, you know, you really create a, <laughs> you create a, a strong case and you, you go after them, you know, like, Oh yeah. You know, and she didn't do that. And I thought that was interesting. And that was sort of my introduction into the Baha'i faith, because I thought it was so odd that somebody would say that, that I actually did get a book and I started reading about it and um, still thought it was a cult um, when I read it because <laughs> I just couldn't pronounce the words and I didn't know what it was and I didn't understand it. And anytime you like first time you read about the world coming together, you're always like, oh, this is some cult stuff. Like they try to bring everybody together. You know, I was I was waiting for the part where it was like how much you had to give and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when did you realize it wasn't a cult? <laughs> um, I got invited to a youth group that they had on the weekends um, at the LA Baha'i Center. Um, I used to hang out down by the Baha'i Center. There's a, in LA, there's a little area called the Jungle. By the LA Baha'i Center, I had a lot of friends who lived in the jungle. I told them one day that I got invited to this, um, to that Baha'i Center. It literally sits in the middle of the hood and it's like, and it's just very nondescript and it has a huge parking lot, which makes you think that a lot of people show up there for something. And so we, I was like, yo, we got to go. Like I got invited and we all went and these were all like teenagers that were there and they, they were like, they had a performance group. And so they would do performances, I guess on the weekends at that time. Mm -hmm. And they would like study and deepen and say prayers. And my friends thought it was corny. They, they only were interested in the girls cause there was a lot of really pretty girls in this group. Um, so my friends basically checked out after the first time we went. I don't know. I thought it was weird that these kids were giving up their weekends to do this. Mm -hmm. And what and were they I doing? Wondered, you said they were performing. What were they doing? They were like rehearsing. So they would do like skits and dances. And they had like, you know, all, like they had a, a um, um, variety show, I guess, like a one hour show. And it was all about the unity of humankind. So it was like the whole show was based on these principles. But that was only part of it because the other part of it is like they would literally pray and they would like read these writings that I couldn't really understand. And they were deepening on them and they were having these intense discussions. And so I started going to this group um, on the weekends and just hanging out with them. And I was, they, they invited me to go on a trip with them across the country um, that summer. And I was not a Baha'i. And I said, well, I'm not a Baha'i. And they're like, you don't have to be a Baha'i. You just have to believe in the unity of, of, of humanity, of human, humankind. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I believe in that. That's, I think that's cool. I think we all should like get, be, be getting along and doing, you know, I was like, it was like very basic. I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So I said yes, and um, and this and this group literally like they toured across the country, but you know they didn't really tell me that the shows were actually like in prisons and juvenile halls mm -hmm. and like in projects. They were like in really hardcore dark places, and so I I had to perform if I was going to go on this trip. So I you know wrote this little rap, and they put me in the middle of the show. Um, which was another learning curve for me because I'd never performed before. But what did happen is that I transformed because I was in front of a lot of kids that were like me mm. uh, and were going through the same tests I had gone through. You know, I came through um, a broken home and, you know, I had a lot of trouble in my, in my family, in my household. Um, I had been around gangs a lot. 
Um, I had gotten in a lot of trouble. And so I was in front of kids and interacting with kids after the shows that were exactly like me. Yeah. And I found myself, I found myself speaking to them and encouraging them to get out of that life. And when they would ask me what the alternative is, I would start telling them what the Baha'i faith was, even though I was not a Baha'i. And I didn't really know where that was coming from, but it felt very natural to me. And it felt like it was a part of who I, who I was. Um, and it uplifted me. It made me feel good for the first time. It gave me confidence cause I wasn't a, I don't think I was a very confident, um, you know, teenager, um, just because I was like used to sort of having to survive all the time yeah. and be introverted as a form of like staying out of the, out of the limelight. Cause when you're in the limelight, like that puts attention on yourself and attention is not good in a lot of settings. And in these moments, I really felt like I was thriving and I was connecting with people on a level I had never connected. And I would stay in touch with a lot of the kids that we met. And because I came from that background in our, in that particular group, I was the one that was able to really speak the same language as them. You know, I, I spoke Spanglish, like I knew about gang culture. I knew about what happened when you were locked up mm. and what was going on. And so I was able to speak the same language as these kids. And for the first time, I also started to become not so shameful about my background and felt like it was actually like a tool that was empowering me to connect with certain people that other people can connect with. Right. Because I would never tell anybody about my life. You know, I didn't want anybody to know anything about me. And I, and I would actually lie a lot about, um, where I came from and, and my experiences, because I just thought it was not, I thought it was a turnoff. So I got good at, at covering and lying about who I was, um, which obviously is not healthy either, but it was also like a protective mechanism. Cause I didn't want people to feel like they didn't want to be around me because mm. of that. So, so the faith started to like, really, I guess, allow me to come into my own, you know, to, to grow into my own skin and become who I felt like I was supposed to be. And, and it was powerful. And that experience alone just made me feel like this is real. And then I started reading the prayers and I just felt like, you know, whoever this guy was, Baha'u'llah, mm -hmm. <laughs> was speaking to me. I couldn't even really say his name properly at the time, but I was like, Baha'u'llah, who's the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And a lot of the prayers were written by him. I felt like he was writing these prayers for me, you know, when I was saying that. I felt like the prayer was like, like made for me. And, and I would say these prayers and I would get really emotional, really worked out and all this stuff was coming out of me. And um, eventually I just hit a moment where I was like, I'm a Baha'i. Like, I just feel like I am a Baha'i. I don't know everything about it. I know I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of stuff to work on, but I feel like my heart belongs to whoever this Baha'u'llah guy is. I don't even know a lot about him, but, <laughs> but I feel like I'm in love with him. And I, and that's weird to say. And that felt very, I felt very weak. Cause I was like, that felt very like not, who I was or like how I was raised. Um, and then of course, like all my friends thought I was crazy. Like, every, like no, everybody stopped being friends with me. Like all my, all the guys in my neighborhood, all the people I went to school with, they just thought I lost my mind. Um, and so it was a tough time for me. Um, it was, it was hard because I had to leave a lot of things behind, but then I also gained like a whole new life basically. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about true happiness. I found that a lot of your work as an artist doesn't shy away from the grind, the tougher and darker sides of life. And there's also this awareness in your music that despite being in the thick of it, you'll get out of it. And there's this world of light that is out there. So Abdu'l-Baha, who is the eldest son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, once said that man is in reality a spiritual being. And only when he lives in the spirit is he truly happy. 
How do you relate to this concept in your life and how does living in the spirit look in in your day-to-day life? I think, you know, it's, it's great that you bring up Abdu'l-Bahá because I think there's a moment I can point to that really um, transformed me in the greatest way um, to be most comfortable as a Baha'i. And I think when I, obviously when I first became a Baha'i, like I went to the opposite end of the spectrum, like I went to the other extreme, which is where like I was super hardcore. Um, I was like almost to the point where I felt like I became judgmental on myself because I wanted to clean myself up so badly and I wanted to become spiritual, like this spiritual giant. You know, and um, and I felt like it created my it, it had an impact on my art, not in a great way, because I felt like I was not being fully honest in my art because I wouldn't talk about certain things because I really wanted Baha'is to like the art that I was making. That was very important to me. Abdul Baha, he was so just in his purpose all the time and just his he always even though he would do things that maybe you didn't understand, like his heart was always in the perfect place. You know what I mean? Like, I remember this quote about how, how he would go out and feed the homeless. And at that time, there was all this sickness going on in the city. And he would shake hands with the homeless and give them money and the poor. And he would, he would like, you know, talk to them and embrace them. And one time a believer said, Abdu'l-Bahá, like, why do you, like, st- stop to talk to all these people? Like, you're not worried about, about you know, any of the, the sickness or anything going on. And he said, every single person that comes to me, I look at it as a letter from God that's written to me and I have to read every letter. Mm. And I thought that was like so amazing. So I say all that to say that I realized that my journey as a Baha'i and before being a Baha'i was a part of who I needed to be as an artist and as a human. And I needed to not shy away from those things, but I needed to be honest about who I was and honest about my own journey and my own trials and tribulations I was going through even as a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. The dark moments, the good moments, and that if I was going to really speak to the people that I felt like needed to hear about this journey and who I was and about why I was in love with being a Baha'i, that I needed to, at some, in some regard, speak their language and be with them, not be of them, but be with them. Um, and that is kind of when I found true happiness, not only as an artist, as a Baha'i, because you know people used to hear the music I would make and they would say, man, it's really good, but it's like missing something. And I never knew what that was. And then when I got to the point where like I started to just tell myself, like, just be honest in everything you create. Like, don't shy away from anything. Don't hide anything you are. Don't censor yourself because that's part of your journey as finding true spirituality. Mm. The dark moments, you know, the low moments, the moments where you're questioning yourself. Because just because we have a faith doesn't mean we don't go through that. Right. Like, not everything perfect. And so my true happiness has really been found and the idea of not compromising who I am and being fully open and honest and transparent with what I'm going through spiritually at all times and then putting that into my music because now I'm seeing the music connect with people because people are saying like, oh my God, like I relate to that. Like I'm in this dark tunnel right now and I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but what you're telling me is that there is light there. Yeah, You're saying, keep, you're saying keep going. Maybe we can't see it yet, but let's just have faith and keep going. And you're telling us what it's like to be in this dark tunnel. And I'm like, yeah, because a lot of people make art and music about the light at the end of the tunnel. And a lot of people can't relate to that because they've never been there. So it's like you're telling something, you're telling people about this other world that they've never lived in. And they're kind of like, they kind of check out because they're like, 
I don't know what that is. So I, so I, I'm not really sure if I'm buying into what you're talking about. Yeah, I think I think you kind of summarized it well. Like living in the spirit is being authentic, and I think it's important to acknowledge that experiencing the darkness or speaking about the darkness doesn't mean that we dwell in that space. I think as Baha'is, there's always this hope uh, for a brighter and greater future, but it's important to acknowledge the difficulties of of, of life and the challenges that we are faced with and, you know, how our lower nature and the forces around us kind of influence us. But we're always striving for the light. We're always striving to be better, to have, um, you know, a better experience at life. I work with artists that also come from a very dark place. Mm-hmm. And they are talking about things that, you know, I don't always necessarily agree with. And I don't I don't compromise what I believe in by by doing that. But I also have gotten to a place where like, I also don't want to be judgmental of people's reality Mm -hmm. because if they don't, if they don't know other things, that is going to be what they speak about. So I've made the choice to dive into that fire and dive into that darkness and try to show people the other side as well. Does that, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a choice that I've made and I don't, I wouldn't say it's for everybody for sure. Mm -hmm. There's so many wonderful and inspiring writings and quotes and perspectives on the importance of arts and crafts and music and sciences in the Baha'i faith. One of my favorite quotes is by Abdu'l-Baha, where he says, the acquisition of sciences and the perfection of arts are considered acts of worship. Um, I personally love the idea that as an artist, we're encouraged to work hard and pursue excellence in our craft. And by this pursuit, we're also performing an act of worship. Are there any Baha'i quotes and teachings or principles that inspire you as an artist? And how does this influence your work as a musician? Oh, man. I mean, there's obviously a ton of quotes. I mean, I always paraphrase the, um, I mean, I always keep the line, you know, ladder to the soul mm-hmm. <laughs> in my um, in my mind at all times. In reference I to think, your art? Yeah, in reference to my art. I just always keep that in my head. Just that one. I don't even keep the whole thing. It's just that piece. <laughs> um I think my biggest gauge, obviously there's like quotes that I, um, things that I'm reading all the time. The one thing I always do tell myself though, is like whenever I'm working on music, um, and I've told other people this too, I was like, look, if you're making a song and you have a question mark next to the song or next to what you're doing, the, what, what I always do is I think about if Abdul Baha walked in the room while I was playing the song, would I feel like I have to stop the song or would he understand what I'm doing with the, with the music? Mm. So along those lines, like how do the Baha'i writings help you stay grounded and not get caught up in this fame, notoriety, materialism that could be so pervasive in the industry, especially in a city like Los Angeles? Um, I think for me, I always just go back to why I do it, you know, and I always go back to being in that youth group and performing on those like crappy little stages with bad sound systems for other kids that were like me. And I think that is like the number one thing that has kept me grounded. And of course, you got to check yourself. You know, you got to check yourself a lot. But um, I've just seen the impact that art can have, you know, on a practical level, especially through my own experiences. And, you know, and also like understanding like where we're at in the world and what's going on in the world. And just like I've seen just even with the kids that I mentor, just them getting excited for me when I have accolades and how much it inspires them. I'm like, you could win a Grammy. They're like, damn, man, I live, you know, I live on 54th and Avalon and you're telling me, or, you know what I'm saying? I I could win a Grammy. And I'm like, dude, you could win it. They're like, man, man, my my mom works three jobs. You're telling me I can win. I'm like, yeah, you (laughs) can win a Grammy. You know? And I think those things drive me because it's like, 
from just a little bit that I've done and the impact that it's had on young people around me and people that are looking up to me, it, it keeps me in check. So I know that I have to do service and I know that I have to do things like that because that is what keeps me in check. Yeah. That's what, that's what keeps me aligned. And without that, I definitely think that, that this answer is a lot different. Mm-hmm. And imagining Abdu'l-Bahá in the room if you press play. A hundred percent. I don't know. I just think those things are important because it is easy. And, and really, like, honestly, saying prayers before sessions, because in that prayer, I always say that, you know, allow us to be hollerees, open channels, allow us to know that none of this belongs to us. You know, you're just trying to find a way to put put those things that have already been done, you're trying to put them together in a way that may feel fresh and feel new. So as a Baha'i and an artist who's active in the music scene, um, meeting with record labels, executives, sitting in boardrooms, what is missing? What do you think that Baha'i teachings could bring into these spaces? I think that is when what I just talked about is definitely one. Yeah. I think the act of service, I mean, I'm always trying to encourage um, people I work with, people around me, executives, because, you know, the arts, well, entertainment industry, I won't say the arts, entertainment industry is a grind. Mm-hmm. I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying you can get so far down in the trenches of work and, you know, and chasing and doing all these things that you do forget to stop and do those service things to do, do those kind of give back things that keep you grounded. And I think the faith is so much about service and grassroots service. And, you know, even with the core activities, it's like, that's why I'm always inviting people to come to devotionals. Like I'm inviting music executives. I'm inviting other artists. Hey, Benny, Benny, what are the core activities? Oh, sorry. Core activities. <laughs> um, I know I just said it in passing. Um, so in the Baha'i faith, we have these things called the core activities, which are um, devotionals, which is a thing, thing that I um, am hosting on Zoom with people in my neighborhood right now. Devotionals are basically when a group of people gets together and they say prayers, they read writings. There really is no rules for what you can read, what you can sing, as long as they're in a spirit of devotion and worship. Um, the other thing is um, we have these study groups called Ruhi. Um, Ruhi is the name of this course. It's a series of books that we all get together and study. You don't have to be a Baha'i to do it. You can be anybody that's just interested in delving into spirituality and different aspects of spirituality. You can go through this course. Um, I do a Ruhi book every Sunday with a small group here on the east side of LA. It's awesome. And then we have children's classes. Um, we have classes that are for children, for youth, for junior youth. And those are classes that are similar in the sense that they're about spiritual qualities. They're about virtues. Um, they're also courses that kids go through um, in order to prepare them for, you know, what they're going to deal with as they get older. So the core activities are awesome because as a Baha'i, it's just like a structured way to participate in things that are going to keep your spirit elevated. So I think, you know, for me, the entertainment business could use the core activities. <laughs> the entertainment business could use, you know, as a whole, the mm-hmm. principles of, you know, even from like a Black Lives Matter perspective, just the concept of unity and diversity, the concept of equality of men and women, you know, it's like there's only, let me think, there's only literally two women of color that are heads of record labels in the entire music business. Two women of color which is crazy. There's only really three women, period, that are heads of record labels. All the rest of them are pretty much white males. Mm. All, all the heads of record labels. Um, that is crazy when you think about it. In a, in, the, in a music business that's dominated a lot by, uh, mostly by female artists and mostly by people of color, that's, that is the breakdown of people running record labels and people in positions of power. So 
in essence, if we were looking at some of the teachings of the Baha'i faith, we would see how important it is to have diversity in positions of leadership. We would understand that people of color should actually be considered first in most of those those um, situations mm. yeah. um, and should be cultivated and nurtured to be able to be in those positions of leadership because it's like makes no sense to be, you know, makes no sense for a kid to be signed to a record label that's black and not see anybody around him that represent his his background or skin color. <laughs> I could go on and on. We could have a whole podcast about how the teachings could affect the entertainment business in a positive way. But I think those are like some of the essential ones of just like what's missing in the business is definitely diversity, is definitely the idea of why we are making music because so much of it is about market share, which like, yeah, that's important. But like we are making music that literally has the, has the ability to change the world, like to inspire people to like, help heal what's going on in our country right now. And that doesn't mean in a corny way. That just means like how we live and how we act as artists and executives, like how we function. You know, are we in the neighborhoods working with kids? Are we like out here peacefully protesting for change? Are we doing those things to help affect change? And the answer nine times out of 10 is no. But I think it is important that we look at, at why we are in this business and what we can do with our positions of power and influence. On that note, I sadly have to bring this conversation to a close, but uh, Ben Good, thank you so much for sharing your story, being your authentic self and opening up um, these, these great uh, insights to hopefully evolving conversations that you and I can have and our listeners can have in the future. So thanks so much again for your time today. And thank you for the great questions. That was awesome. All right, take care. Bye, everybody. I love you all. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.